This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from Washington, sitting in for Josh King, here's Matt Bennett. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. I'm Matt Bennett, guest hosting this week for my friend Josh King. In this episode, we'll be talking to two chroniclers of politics. One is a leading political journalist, and she covers the present and future of politics. The other is an historian who's got a forthcoming book about the not-too-distant past. My first guest is Molly Ball. She's a political staff writer for The Atlantic, where she's served for two years. Before that, she covered politics for Politico and the Las Vegas Review-Journal, the Las Vegas Sun. And, like most political reporters, she cut her teeth at the Cambodia Daily. Molly is regarded as a rising or perhaps a risen star in the political journalism firmament. She appears frequently on TV and radio. Her stories are read widely in Washington and elsewhere for their incisiveness, originality, and wit. After talking to Molly about the politics of today, we'll take a trip to the mist-shrouded pasts of the 1990s and talk about the man who dominated that decade of politics, Bill Clinton. Our guest is David Bennett. He's an emeritus professor of American history at Syracuse University, where he recently retired after 52 years, which is a school record. Bennett is the author of a forthcoming history of the Clinton presidency entitled Bill Clinton, Building a Bridge to the New Millennium. This will be the first truly historical account of that era. Of course, there's been the Clinton autobiography and a bunch of books by journalists, but this is the first time an historian has examined the Clinton White House in a comprehensive way with original source material. Bill Clinton, Building a Bridge to the New Millennium, available at Amazon and elsewhere on December 19. And no, the name is not a coincidence. Professor Bennett is my father. But before we get to dear old dad, let's start with a new mom, Molly Ball. Well, Molly Ball, thank you so much for joining us. Now, I have to start not with a story you wrote or about politics, but a story that you starred in. In 2007, you, Molly Ball, were a huge winner on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which is incredible. So you have to tell (laughs) us about that. Well, I was living in Las Vegas at the time. I was a reporter for the Las Vegas Review Journal. And uh, in mid-2006, I guess, uh, there were tryouts for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. They were traveling around the country holding tryouts so they would expand the contestant pool outside of just people who go to New York City and try out. Uh, Meredith Vieira was the host of the show at this time. And uh, I am a trivia buff, and I was a watcher of the show, so I went to try out, figured why not. There was a multiple-choice test, and then anyone who passed some kind of cutoff on that was given a quick sort of screen test, a little on-camera thing for just a few seconds. And then they said, uh, see you later. If you make the show, you'll get a postcard in the mail. So a few weeks later, I got a postcard that said, be in New York City on this day, three weeks from now, pay your own way to New York, and uh, you're on the show. So They I use was, a postcard? That's so old school. They send you a school. postcard. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they still do, right? This is some time ago now. Uh, but So I taped the show in October of 2006, and as a political reporter, October of an even-numbered year is not an easy time to get away, uh, but I sort of you know, took a red eye to New York and... Uh, It was great fun. I was on two consecutive shows. They are taped back-to-back, but, you know, they air on consecutive days, so you change outfits in between. And uh, I ended up doing quite well. I won $100,000. I used all my lifelines wisely, and uh, everyone wants to know the question that stumped me. 
the $250,000 question that I declined to answer was something to the effect of um, a character in the Harry Potter books, Dumbledore, is an archaic word meaning what? Oh, that is brutal. So what's the answer? So I'm not a Harry Potter reader, but even if you were, you wouldn't know the answer to this question. It's a word question. I was a little chagrined to uh, miss a word question as sort of a word person, but the answer is bumblebee. So now you know. Wow. (laughs) Our listeners are edified by that knowledge. Uh, So moving on to your career, another one of your many wins was the Robin Toner Prize, which is from the Newhouse School at Syracuse University, where our next guest actually teaches. And uh, I had the privilege of knowing Robin a little bit when she covered politics back in the 1980s. And that prize uh, was, at least in part, for excellence in your reporting about the gay marriage referenda in 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out that? Sure. I'll talk a little bit about the reporting of the story and how I decided to do the story and then a little bit about what what the story consisted of. Uh, Around August, July or August of 2012, I was covering the presidential campaign primarily, but I'm really interested in state level politics because I was once a a state reporter, a local reporter, uh, and the way that ballot referenda, you know, show us where the country is on issues. And I started to notice that there were these gay marriage ballot initiatives uh, and the pro-gay marriage side was polling ahead, slightly ahead in all of these states, in Minnesota, in Washington state, in Maine and in Maryland. And I knew how extraordinary that would be if it held up because in the past, and most memorably in California in 2008 with Proposition 8, uh, gay marriage had been on the ballot 31 times and had lost every single time it'd been up for a popular vote. This was a very powerful talking point for opponents of gay marriage to say the people are with us, no matter what the political elites say or the moneyed interests or Hollywood elites, whatever, the people are with us every single time this goes on the ballot, even in a deep blue state like California in a presidential year when Obama wins in a landslide. So I started poking around on this. Uh, and I started talking to the campaigns and started talking especially to uh, Freedom to Marry, a New York-based advocacy group that uh, really just in the past few years had started trying to run smarter political campaigns on gay marriage. And uh, so even as I was uh, almost literally never at my house, crisscrossing the country on the campaign trail, I negotiated with Freedom to Marry to get some sort of behind-the-scenes access for a story that would come out after the election uh, and kept in touch with them in the months leading up to the election and then afterwards to see how they were making this happen. At the time, they didn't know if they were going to win. They they hoped that they would win one because it would be a big symbolic victory. They did not think they would win all four. Uh, And so I was collecting string, as we say in the reporting biz, uh, keeping all of these files and emails and uh, polling data and stuff. And then lo and behold, on election night, all four of these gay marriage ballot initiatives won. It ended up being a huge story. I wrote a sort of magazine-length 10,000-word piece about the initiative, sort of tracing uh, the really the politics of gay marriage, which is not something that anyone had really written about at that length before. Um, And looking at how they did this incredible persuasion campaign, because they really spent years laying the groundwork to convince people. A lot of politics is sort of moving people around who already agree with you. Uh, But this was a persuasion campaign that took place on the grassroots level, door to door and family to family and people talking to their coworkers. And it was really powerful. What do you see the trajectory of gay 
uh, marriage politics heading in the next few years. So that was 2012. It was the first time, as you say, that anyone had ever won anything in the ballot box. Do you see more of that happening? Do you see more votes coming in Congress on employment discrimination, other gay rights issues? How are the politics of gay marriage and other issues going to play out, do you think? Well, on the one hand, the politics of this issue has already changed profoundly. You saw even Mitt Romney running away from this issue rather than running toward it the way uh, George Bush did in 2004. And so what was once a political wedge for Republicans has not quite become a political wedge for Democrats. Let's remember that although it's crossed that majority threshold of support, uh, American support for gay marriage still hovers in the low 50 percent range. Uh, and it varies quite a bit by state. Um, th- so there are more sort of dominoes falling all the time at the state level, whether in legislatures or in the courts. New Jersey, the courts just decreed uh, gay marriage. But activists believe that the final victory, if you will, uh, will be in the courts. The Supreme Court decision on uh, the Defense of Marriage Act and Proposition 8 earlier this year did not recognize a right of same-sex marriage universally, but it tiptoed very strongly in that direction. And there's a lot of, it was actually the language in the DOMA decision that has provided the basis for some other courts that have ruled since then uh, to uh, create gay marriage in some places. Uh, And so they are waiting for the right case, uh, but it is primarily a legal strategy at this point. But but, you know, part of the reason that Freedom to Marry and other activists felt so strongly that they had to win these ballot initiatives was because they believed that the court does not act unless the political groundwork has been laid. The court is very reluctant to do something like a Roe v. Wade, where they wade into a divisive issue when the country doesn't appear ready or the national debate hasn't been had and create a ginormous firestorm, uh, to use a technical term. Uh, so, so you know, the... By creating this this public opinion trajectory and this uh, impression that the states are moving in in a certain direction, uh, the court the the idea was to create a, a, a comfort level on the court uh, to make these kind of rulings. And uh, now you have the human rights campaign, for example, saying they believe that all of America will have a right of same-sex marriage within five years. The other piece, employment discrimination, I don't know as much about. I know that there's uh, people working hard on it in the Congress. But as we know, anything is a heavy lift in Congress these days. Indeed. Uh, Apparently, there's going to be a Senate vote on that soon. But obviously, the House is a totally different story. And um, what I've heard, the the way that the gay rights community thinks about this is uh, if there is a court decision of the type you talk about, what they want to make sure is that it's more like Brown versus Board of Education, where the country eventually coalesces around it and says, well, of course, that was the obviously correct decision. Then like Roe, where there's decades and decades of fighting that follow. Exactly. And a lot of uh, uh, pro-abortion rights activists still think that Roe v. Wade may not have been good for their cause, because even though it created a national right to an abortion, uh, it gave a lot of ammunition to the other side by sort of inflaming this issue that, that again, the, the country was very divided on and not necessarily ready. Um, let's turn to uh, the politics of the presidency. You cover the waterfront of these stories. Uh, the biggest ship on that waterfront right now is the USS Hillary Clinton. And as you reported, she spoke recently as an, at an event for Virginia gubernatorial candidate Terry McAuliffe. Uh, she was at an event for the Center for American Progress yesterday. You were at both of these. 
what did you see and hear from her that was either interesting, surprising, not surprising? What is she saying at these political events? Well, she hasn't done a lot of these political events. Most of what she has done are these sort of stupefyingly fluffy and anodyne award acceptance speeches where she says things that nobody could disagree with, like women should be empowered. And uh, she's been very cautious. And I think caution is one of the hallmarks of her political personality. However, she went out on a bit of a limb uh, at particularly at this event uh, this past weekend for Terry McAuliffe, uh, where uh, I was expecting... Again, something kind of boring. I was expecting her to try to not make news. And she could have done sort of a Terry's my friend. You should vote for him. He basks in her glow. The Democrats all go home happy. She was more political than that and more pointed than that. And she gave a a little bit of a disquisition on uh, her view of what's happening in Washington, railed against uh, her line now is politicians who choose scorched earth over common ground and uh, the shutdown and that type of thing. Uh, So it seemed to me that she was very clearly test driving some potential campaign rhetoric for herself. And I am not interested in reading tea leaves on whether or not she's going to run because anyone who tells you they know is lying. Uh, But it is interesting to see how she is doing this, how she is testing these waters, which she very clearly is doing. And how are Republicans reacting to her? Uh, You had a bit in your piece about how the Cuccinelli campaign responded to her uh, McAuliffe event. What do you think Republicans are going to do as she inches back towards the political stage? I don't think they have a strategy for that. And I think it's difficult for them. On the one hand, uh, she left the Secretary of State's office with a very high approval rating And she did use those four years to really rehabilitate herself in the eyes of the public. I know a lot of Republicans in Congress who adore her. They feel like she uh, created much better relationships uh, across the aisle than in many cases the Obama administration did. At the same time, it was easier for her because foreign policy is a less partisan uh, issue. And uh, and so she was out of the partisan trenches for four years. So, of course, people are going to see her as less political, less polarizing. We've seen what a polarizing figure Hillary Clinton can be in the past. And we have the beginnings of an effort to reinstate that. I believe at another event earlier this week, she was heckled with someone yelling about Benghazi. And that has become the main line of attack against her. I don't think we have seen that the Benghazi scandal or whatever it is has really great resonance with the public. The Republicans have sort of struggled to come up with an explanation of what it's about. Uh, But that is something from her tenure as Secretary of State that uh, poses a potential problem for her. You mentioned the bit in the story about the Cuccinelli campaign. Their statement was something about, you know, the last time we saw Terry McAuliffe and Hillary Clinton together, he was a booking nights in the Lincoln bedroom. And I thought, okay, that's a little bit dated. If that's what they've got on her, I think you're going to have trouble convincing Americans that that disqualifies her to be president. You had a great line in that piece that said that will really resonate with people who are heading out to buy the latest Pearl Jam CD, which, (laughs) I mean, going back 15, 20 years doesn't seem like a great political strategy to me, but uh, we'll talk to our next guest about that era of Clinton politics. You have spent a lot of time thinking and writing about tensions inside the Republican Party. And last week, you had a great piece uh, on the Atlantic site called The Conservative War on the GOP. You quoted a number of leading right-wing luminaries who seem to be 
even eager for a civil war and maybe even a divorce inside that party. What is going on with those guys? Well, on the one hand, tension within the Republican Party isn't new, right? We saw it in the primaries in 2011. We've seen it going back to the Bush administration and heck for decades even. Um, And any party that's out of power is going to look like a squabbling collection of mutually antagonistic uh, forces. I'm old enough to remember when that was the Democrats. Uh, However, uh, I was struck by the extent to which these divisions and the sort of trash talk from the far right and the Tea Party and talk radio has become an attack on the Republican Party itself. Instead of saying, we want the Republican Party and we don't want you in the Republican Party, they're saying the Republican Party is the problem. They're saying we have to destroy the Republican Party in order to save conservatism. And you have people like Sean Hannity saying they want a third party. You have a, a a lot of people on the on the right, uh, the the head of the Tea Party Patriots, says she's hearing more about this than ever before. Members of the Tea Party who sort of decide made a decision when the movement started to be a sort of de facto wing of the Republican Party now rethinking that decision, uh, and this makes the Republican establishment very nervous. They have done their best to make room in the tent for these uh, voices, but they feel like they have lost control. And party institutions are probably weaker now than they've ever been. This is true of the DNC as much as it is of the RNC, partly because of changes in campaign finance. But it's also the case that just institutions overall have eroded. And so the sort of traditional uh, country club Republican establishment can't control these forces. And they and and so the, the unity of the, the whole, you know, they, they can't win elections without them. Uh, because they are a large part of the Republican base, but they also don't seem to be able to placate them and get them to fall into line to create a more constructive vision than the sort of Ted Cruz version of Republican party politics. Right. And as you say, there's tensions inside both parties from time to time. Uh, In the early aughts, uh, the Howard Dean wing of the Democratic Party was pushing hard on the more establishment wing. Uh, And that's always true. But I think you'd agree that you have to go back about 40 years to look to find a Democratic Party as riven by internal dissent as the Republicans are today. I mean, um, the 72 Democratic Convention was pretty bad. And and, uh, prior to that, there were all kinds of tensions with Southern Democrats. But today, there are disagreements that can be problematic and the party is weak, but it is nothing like what we're seeing with Republicans. Do you, do you agree with that? I agree. The level of democratic unity is pretty remarkable. The fact that Harry Reid, for example, got every single Democrat in the Senate, including the red state Democrats who are not very liberal and are facing tough reelections, every single one of them voted repeatedly to hold the line uh, against Republican attempts to uh, mitigate the shutdown or or sort of find chinks in in Democrats' armor, uh, and there I was uh, yesterday at this uh, Center for American Progress conference where you did hear a lot of disagreements on policy from the stage. People talking about well maybe the Keystone Pipeline should or should not be built. Maybe we should or should not care more about the deficit. And all those disagreements are sort of okay within the Democratic coalition at this point. Uh, nobody is threatening to take their ball and go home. In part, I think, because they are so frightened of the opposition. The the uh, the extent to which the Republican Party has uh, 
ha- has gone to the right has has convinced Democrats that they need to be unified to to hold the line against them. And you mentioned a moment ago Ted Cruz. He's become an object of fascination. I'm sure you heard his name mentioned at the CAP event yesterday. You've done a little uh, time. You've spent some time covering Ted Cruz. Tell us your impression of him, because I I could tell you for those of us kind of on the left and center left, we don't know what to make of the guy. He's obviously brilliant, incredibly talented, but also like a ticking time bomb. So what should we think about Ted Cruz? Well, I I think the thing that uh, liberals and people in Washington most often get wrong about Ted Cruz is to see him as a sort of singular force. Ted Cruz has a constituency. Ted Cruz has power because there are a lot of people who agree with him. Now, it is not probably a majority of the American electorate. I think it would be a difficult road for the Republican Party if they nominated him for president. But uh, there are a lot of people out there who share his anger at the system and at Washington and at the way business is done in Congress. So, you know, he sort of promised the primary voters of Texas when he unseated, in a way, an an establishment Republican who thought he was entitled to that Senate seat. Uh, He convinced those Republican voters that what was needed was someone who who would sort of come here and declare war on business as usual. Uh, And he did. And people are surprised now that he has done what he said he was going to do. There's a real loathing for Ted Cruz in the Republican caucus in the Senate and in the House. And this is not a secret. These Republicans, to a remarkable degree, have gone on the record with uh, their distaste for Cruz's tactics uh, because there's a feeling he's violated some of the norms, you know, and he's he's pushed the House to take votes. And then Grover Norquist, I think, said Ted Cruz pushed the House Republicans into traffic and then wandered away. Uh, and And so... Uh, but he doesn't care. Uh, he has been very effective at uh, turning some of the 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 ways of the Capitol, uh, weaponizing them. You know, things like the the filibuster or some of these procedural votes, and uh, and and making a stand and refusing to back down. Of course, as you say, he has brought one piece of bipartisan agreement to Washington. It seems everybody in Congress really despises Ted Cruz, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, with, with a handful of exceptions. Um, but obviously, uh, that is not important to him. He is he is after other things. And, and Yeah, he said in a recent him. interview, I believe on the Sunday shows last weekend, he said, if I had to choose between making, uh, you know, I didn't come here to make 99 new friends in Washington. If I had to choose between being admired in Washington and reviled in Texas and being uh, reviled in uh, Washington and admired in Texas, I'll take the latter 100% of the time. There you have it. Um, speaking of the right-wing fringe, Ken Cuccinelli, the candidate for governor in Virginia, uh, is, if not of the Ted Cruz mold, not that far off in terms of Republican politics. And you had a longish piece out about this the other day. Where do you think that race is heading and why? Well, the trajectory of the Virginia gubernatorial race seems quite clear at this point. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli is trailing by an average of 10 points in the polls. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, the former uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton fundraiser, is, is, is up very substantially. There's a libertarian candidate who's taking a substantial chunk of the vote. It's, it, it may be a protest vote. There are a lot of 
out there's a lot of outcry from sort of the editorial boards of Virginia newspapers and so on about how unappealing both of these candidates are. But look, Virginia is a swing state. It is a closely divided state. It is a state that has uh, switched control in the governor's mansion from Democrat to Republican over the years. And so it's a really interesting test case of if you have uh, a sort of far right Tea Party uh, sympathizing Republican. Cuccinelli is very uncompromising. He's uh, he's been a very activist attorney general against everything from climate science to healthcare. He was the first attorney general to file suit against Obamacare, uh, abortion clinics, a lot of other issues. He's he's really uh, staked out a, a crusading profile and made himself a hero to a lot of national conservatives. So if you take this very conservative Tea Party Republican and put him against a Democrat who's pretty unappealing, who's not a very strong candidate, what happens? What, who wins that? And, and so it looks like the takeaway is the Tea Party Republican loses that fight. And that's a pretty profound lesson for Republicans nationwide, for these establishment Republicans who are saying, we can't win if we become the Ted Cruz party. This is a very, pretty powerful example to say, you know, this is a low turnout off your election, which ought to give an, ad, an advantage to Republicans on turnout. But you have these uh, independent and moderate swing state voters really turning away from this brand of conservatism. Right. And was, as with everything else, uh, Virginia is a bellwether unless it's bad for you politically. So the Republicans all of a sudden have decided that Virginia means nothing. It's just an outlier. And we had that terrible candidate. And so they're going to write him off. Uh, it seems like they're already doing the pre-mortems on him. Sure. And of course, they're going to want to dissociate themselves um, from him. But I don't know what the substance of that argument is. I don't see uh, any argument. You know, his campaign hasn't been great, but it hasn't been terrible. They have run to the right. Uh, There was an early attempt to sort of moderate his persona. um, But even Republicans complain that uh, he hasn't done much to sort of set out a positive policy vision. He, his, his quote unquote detailed jobs plan consists of a, a single page of tax cuts. Um, uh, he has not campaigned much in Northern Virginia, which is where most of the population is, where Bob McDonald, the sitting Republican governor, managed to actually win Fairfax County, the sort of crucial uh, inner ring suburb of Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, you've got to really put up a fight in those suburban areas as a Republican if you expect to uh, win the state. And they feel like instead he's had this strategy of really running to the base. I went to a Cuccinelli event this week and I timed it. I went back to my recording and in a 20 minute speech, he literally spent nine minutes bashing Obamacare uh, and another three minutes or so on pleasantries and a few minutes on things he'd done as attorney general. not once did he mention anything he planned to do if elected governor. There wasn't even, you know, usually politicians will put sort of a throwaway line in the speech and I'll create jobs, et cetera, et cetera, I'll finish it, I'll, I'll make education better. There was nothing about that. Uh, and so he seems to be very much counting on turning out the Republican base as his last ditch strategy. And he has forgotten one of the cardinal rules of polyoptics that was uh, pounded home by my former boss. We'll talk about him next, Bill Clinton, who said elections are about the future, not the past. And when Bill Clinton ran for president in 1992, he spent virtually zero time talking about his uh, tenure as governor. He talked only about what he would do as president. And when you're running for a chief executive office like governor or president, it seems like that'd be important to do. 
Well, so there are these these rules of politics, like you know, you you run to your base in the primary and you run to the center in the general. And as a reporter, I try to be skeptical of any conventional wisdom or cliches or received wisdom. But there's a reason for some of those rules, and they've been around for a really long time, and I don't think they've changed. We should always be alert to the sort of uh, hidebound conventions of yesteryear being disrupted by modern events. Uh, but I don't think there's reason to believe that, that that particular rule has changed. And indeed, this may be a perfect case study in, in, in how it has not. Well, Molly Ball, a champion of trivia and a political journalist extraordinaire, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us on Polyoptics. Thanks, Matt. It was great. All right. So let's change gears here and go from the politics of today to the politics of the 1990s. Uh, My guest is David Bennett, an emeritus professor at Syracuse University who has spent the last more than 50 years teaching students about recent American history, uh, including in that, of course, uh, for the last couple of decades is the Clinton administration. Uh, David Bennett, in your scholarship, you specialize in modern American history And you've spent a lot of time thinking about presidents and their time in office, and you've taught a generation of students about 20th century presidents, including Bill Clinton. In researching this book on Clinton, what surprised or struck you the most, either about the events of the Clinton era or about the man himself? What struck me the most was how complicated um, the task was that he had to face. He knew coming into uh, into the presidency that what his main goal was was to deal with a wrenching recession that to to shape policies that would make america stronger and americans more secure he called it building a bridge the to the new century he hoped that the foreign and military policy challenges that face every president might be less challenging for him because this was a post cold war environment but he couldn't anticipate the maddening crisis maddeningly complex crisis that he was going to face with failed states, with rogue states, with the emergence of terrorism, with an ethnic, ethnic and, and religious conflict across the globe. But uh, that's, that's to be expected for any great president. What you might not expect was the daily humiliating media feeding frenzy that, uh, that he had to deal with, the way in which so many enemies who wanted to demean him to uh, destabilize his administration, to even destroy it, it created a series of scandals, most of them illusory, whitewater, travelgate, filegate across the years that, uh, that uh, harassed him, the creation of special prosecutors and special prosecutors for may, many members of his, his cabinet. So that what struck me was how was he able to handle all of these issues at the same time? In 1998, for example, during the uh, the one scandal which truly threatened him, the the sex scandal involving uh, Monica Lewinsky, the uh, the White House intern, the Kosovo War was underway. There was the terrorist strikes against the East African embassies in Dar es Salaam and in Nairobi. The Asian financial crisis is going, still going forward. Uh, there was uh, new developments in, in, in Ireland and because he played a big role in trying to bring peace to that troubled area. How was he able to do that? I asked a couple of his senior aides, um, 
John Podesta his last uh, chief of staff, and and Samuel Sandy Berger, who was uh, national security director, about this. And they both said remarkably similar things. They said he had an ability to focus, to compartmentalize the issues before him, to deal with the pressing matters of national import and, and domestic and foreign policy, even while the drumbeat of scandal was occupying Washington and most of the country. So he was unlike some of his predecessors. Right. I mean, uh, as you point out in the book, he was accused of uh, doing a wag the dog attack. Uh, in other words, uh, a military strike in that was uh, explicitly designed to take attention away from his domestic problems, uh, accused by his uh, enemies and by some in the press. And so how did he handle that kind of thing? I mean, how did that not seep into the situation room meetings that he was having to decide what to do in these life or death questions? Yeah, exactly. I mean, around the time that he was offering the retaliatory strikes after the attack on those East African embassies, uh, a, a film had just been issued in the United States earlier that year called Wag the Dog, which was um, about uh, presidential aides who tried to create, I think it was in Albania, a an attack to divert attention from domestic policies. And he knew about that. In fact, they were talking about that in, in, in the White House. And uh, Richard Clark, the terrorism uh, chief, said, Clinton made it clear we were to give him our best national security advice. And if we thought this was the best time to hit the Afghan camps, he'd order it and take the heat for the wag of dog criticism, because we all knew it was coming. And, I, and Sandy Berger had said that this was what he had argued all along. He, his orders to them was, let me handle the politics. Just tell me about policy. And, and during the Mexican bailout, during the Kosovo ground troop proposals, which were eliciting enormous media and political opposition, uh, uh, Clinton wanted Berger and the national security team to keep the White House political people away from any consideration of pol- policy alternatives. He was always able to do that. And the Mexican bailout, you... you uh referenced is when the Mexican peso was cratering and Bob Rubin at Treasury and Larry Summers and others uh, came together to devise a plan to rescue the peso, which ended up in the short term, perhaps costing the U.S. a little bit of money, but in the long term, saving in many ways the global economy from a real disaster. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, at, at the time, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of opposition in Congress, too, and a lot of concern in the media. And uh, a previous chief of staff had told him, you know, if, if they don't pay the money back, it could cost you the next election. Uh, but he went forward with it. Uh, so on domestic policy, the, the bailout is kind of a cross between economic and, and foreign policy. Uh, maybe Clinton's biggest single accomplishment was to preside over an economic boom and ultimately a budget surplus, which seems remarkable in retrospect. But those things didn't just happen by accident. When Clinton came into office, as you write in the book, uh, the economy was still struggling to emerge from a recession. How did he steer us out of that ditch that he called the economy during the 92 campaign? What did he do? Well, he knew that this was uh, the real issue that was going to confront him. And during the transition, before he moved into the White House, this was the major question down in Little Rock. And he finally decided that um, he would have to become a deficit hawk. Uh, you know, there were liberals and there were uh, less, uh, less, less liberal figures in, in his uh, administration to be. There were debates about this. 
but he believed that there was no alternative but to to try to deal with the deficit. He had met with Alan Greenspan, the conservative free market libertarian who was head of the Federal Reserve System, who had come down and talked to him. And uh, Greenspan was deeply concerned about the the escalating budget deficit. I mean, it's one of the great ironies, isn't it, that uh, conservative Republicans had long argued that the Democrats were the tax and tax and spend and spend party, but they themselves had presided over a spectacular increase in the budget deficit. It had tripled under Ronald Reagan, rose again spectacularly under George W. H. W. Bush during the recession period. The budget deficit was almost $300 billion. The Congressional Budget Office was predicting it would be almost $500 billion at the end of Clinton's administration. And Greenspan was saying, look, I'm going to raise interest rates unless something's done about that. And if he raised interest rates, it would strangle any chance of building that bridge to the new century and creating a boom. So what Clinton decided to do in the so-called omnibus budget bill of 1993, which was the critical issue in, at the beginning of his administration, was to create what I, what I guess uh, – Barack Obama talked about a year or so ago as a grand bargain, raising revenues and cutting spending to appease the Federal Reserve System and the bond markets. And he did do that. That was part of the omnibus budget bill. But of course, uh, it was a grand bargain in the substance sense, but not in the political sense, because there wasn't a single Republican vote for that bill. Isn't that not right? a single Republican. Every one of them was opposed to it because it included... $240 billion in increase in revenues, uh, tax increases on the top 1.2%, uh, removing the, the cap on, uh, on Medicare taxes, increased corporate taxes, increased gas taxes. Not a single Republican could live with that. They were all dealing with, with uh, what's now become the mantra of the Republican Party, borrowing it from, uh, from their iconic figure, President Ronald Reagan. You got the get the government out of our pockets. They wouldn't vote for any tax increases. So, as you said, it was all going to be within the Democratic Party, but some Democrats were concerned about it, too, and it was the narrowest margin possible. He won it in the House of Representatives, 218 to 216, I think it was, and it was a 50-50 split in in the, in the Senate, which allowed uh, Vice President Gorda to... Um, cast the deciding vote. Yeah, I, re I remember when I used to travel with Gore, he used to say, there's a little known rule that every time I vote, we win, and I voted, and we won, and the economy recovered as a result. That was a big applause line by the time we got to 2000. Oh, yeah, and, and, but to get those votes was uh, ex excruciating. He had to be on the phones constantly. To the last moment, he didn't realize that he would win in the House or in the Senate. It was uh, a whoop of joy, he said, that I elicited when we finally got the winning House vote, which came, of course, from a, a congresswoman who was going to lose her seat for that. Right. Marjorie Margolis, uh, Ms. Vinsky, uh, she wrote an extraordinary op-ed uh, just before the vote on health care reform a couple of years ago, uh, exhorting House Democrats to do the right thing, noting she voted for that budget bill in 1993, knowing that she was going to lose her seat with Republicans saying bye-bye Marjorie to her on the floor of the House, as you say in the book. Uh, and she's glad she did because it was important and the country is better off for it. Right. I mean, she was probably from the 
the most Republican district that a Democrat had won, and she had said that she wouldn't vote for higher taxes, but she knew that Clinton's whole agenda rested on this, and she said, you know, I'll vote last, um, but I'll I'll vote for you if you need me. I will not let this fail. And she did. And uh, she paid the price. But America was clearly better for it. Right. That's obvious. Now it wasn't obvious to the Republicans who, uh, right after that vote, predicted disaster across the board. Frank Luntz uh, had coined the phrase job creators to talk about the rich. Uh, They were now going to be taxed more, as you pointed out. And they turned out to be spectacularly wrong. Talk about what happened with Republicans after that and, and what, how they reacted and, and how the public then reacted. Many of them gathered on the steps of, of the White House afterwards saying that this is going to um, destroy the American economy, that it'll go, that the deficit will go through the ceiling. Newt Gingrich said, I believe it'll kill uh, the current recovery and put us back in a deep recession. John Cash, I mean, many of these people are still with us, of course who was now the governor at Ohio was a Republican Congress. This bill, bill is going to kill jobs. They all were using uh, Frank Luntz's terminology. Christopher Cox said that'll kill jobs, kill businesses, kill even higher tax revenues. Dick Armey, Phil Crane, they all used the same language. Uh, it was all, you know, we, we weren't taxing wealthy people, we weren't taxing rich people, we were taxing job creators and we were killing jobs. And as you say, they were all spectacularly wrong. And looking back at the rhetoric that we have heard in the last year or two, uh, it's almost as if the Clinton administration had never occurred. What could explain this historical amnesia? It's it's amazing. And we, of course, we've just come through a budget shutdown, uh, a government shutdown and a budget battle of our own. Uh, and then... Uh, it, and many of the people talking about this one were hearkening back to 1995-96 when there were shutdowns that Clinton went through. Take us through that fight. Uh, you have a great anecdote from Paul Begala about that. That's right. The, the, the Republicans had come to power in 1994. Uh, Bill Clinton and his administration somehow had lost the narrative. Uh, they had a margin in both houses of Congress when he was elected in 92, but that was lost in the great Republican victory of 94, made possible in part because of uh, the counterproductive nature of some of his successes. I mean, the budget bill went forward and the Republicans ran in 94 saying he was a tax and tax Democrat. Uh, he had been successful in, in pushing through uh, the North American Free Trade Act, because he deeply believed in a global interdependent economy. But a lot of Democrats in his base, particularly union uh, leaders, uh, set out the midterm election. There was the rise of uh, the renewed rise, really, you should say, of, of the Christian coalition under Ralph Reed. And, and um, there was reaction by people who were concerned about gun control because of the passage of the Brady Bill. There were a lot of reasons why why the Republicans came to power, but they did come to power. And Newt Gingrich was now Speaker of the House, and Time Magazine had him on the cover, King of the Hill, they said. And when the budget bill of 95 came forward, uh, Gingrich, Dick Armey, Tom DeLay, the Republican leaders, told Bill Clinton they would have to do his will. And they were going to make massive cuts in the Democratic 
student-sponsored uh, programs. They were going to cut Medicare and Medicaid and food stamps, the student loan program and AmeriCorps and environmental enforcement and do all those things. And the question was, what would, how would Clinton respond? And some people in his party, when Bill Clinton said, all right, I will offer a plan to balance the budget in 10 years, said, oh, he's just being played like a kitten on a string by the Republicans, but they misunderstood him. And and as you noted, Paul, Paul Begala tells this great story about um, Bill Clinton in August of that year. He said, uh, I, I, told, I told the president, Newton, those guys think they, they can roll you. But President Clinton couldn't believe it. We were jogging in Fort McNair in Washington, and he literally stopped short, and he squinted at me, and he said, that can't be. The smarter play would be to give me a proposal that was nuanced enough that I might have to support it, but it would alienate me from the Democratic base. But if Newt's going to be unreasonable and insist on hammering Medicare, I could just play Gary Cooper like in high noon and stand my ground unflinchingly. I can't be that lucky. They won't be that stupid. That's the easiest kind of leadership. I just say no, and I win. Amazing, and, uh, amazing parallels to what we've just been through. I mean, uh, Barack Obama playing the role of Gary Cooper and right. the Republicans failing to provide him with anything that he could uh, – even um, by any measure, except maybe the one difference is that as um, difficult as this group of uh, of uh, right wing Republicans were for Bill Clinton, because they were really extraordinarily nasty in his conversations with him. Dick Armey was saying to him, "We're going to destroy your presidency if you don't do our will," or words to that effect. And when Bob Dole, the Senate leader, the man who wanted to be and was going to be the Republican candidate for president, intervened and said he didn't agree in going down that road, Army said, "You don't speak for you don't speak for the House." I mean, the House Republican leadership was very tough back then, and very ideological and very nasty to the president. But perhaps they were not as uninformed about the uh, the the implications of a. Of of, a, of of the debt ceiling crisis, as this group that was just elected in 2010 and 2012 are, because Bill Clinton, when they threatened to uh, not raise the debt ceiling, said they can't do that. He said that they will. It'll not only be a world and American financial crisis and a huge recession, but it will be um, something which will affect them personally. It'll raise mortgages. It'll be the Gingrich add-on to them, people's mortgage. And no Republican can live with that. He thought that that was not a serious issue that they were offering, that they would certainly not try to not raise the debt ceiling. The government shutdown was a different matter, and they went to the wall on that. So I have to say no discussion of the Clinton years would be complete without at least touching on impeachment, and uh, there is obviously a hook to the shutdown. Uh, Bill Clinton first came in contact with Monica Lewinsky during the shutdown when she delivered a pizza to the West Wing, uh, where the where the um, uh, staffers were gathered with the president. Talk a little bit about impeachment um, and how that went, both for Clinton himself and, and the White House, but also for Republicans. Well, the Republicans overplayed their hand, and they believed Newt Gingrich did believe, and he uh, 
apparently spoke for many Republicans that finally they had an issue when the Monica Lewinsky affair um, became uh, the, the national scandal it was after Bill Clinton's testimony before the, um, the grand jury and the infamous blue dress became a, a big issue when it was obvious that Bill Clinton had not told the truth about having uh, a, a sexual affair inside the White House with this young intern. They um, believed that they finally had the the issue which would destroy this charming man who'd been their, their, um, their, their nemesis across the years. And they thought that they could make this the issue in the 1998 midterm election and threaten impeachment after that. As it turns out, of course, um, they were totally wrong about that, that the economic boom of uh, the late 90s was so dramatic that uh, many Americans believe that the media was fixating too much on sexual scandal, that it was all Monica all the time, and they weren't spending enough, spending enough time and attention on what was changing the lives of Americans. So in the midterm election, instead of the Republican Party gaining seats, as you would expect in a midterm following a Republican defeat in the 1996 presidential election, the reverse happened, and this actually destroyed Newt Gingrich's prospects. There was a huge revolt in his own caucus. He resigned from the House, and he resigned from the Speakership, and he was gone. Just to, just to pause on that for a moment, it's extraordinary in retrospect. I mean, as you say, uh, one would always expect that a second-term president would lose ground, his party would lose ground in the midterms of a, of a second presidential term. That almost always happens. That's uh, what people would expect in ordinary times would happen to Obama in uh, the next election. But not only, and not only did Clinton have this kind of historical overhang, but he had been impeached for, you know, bad personal conduct. And yet, uh, his party managed not only to survive, but almost to thrive in the, in the 98 election. That's right. And the critical variable was what was, what was happening in the economy. I mean, the gross domestic product would go up from, a, uh, from $3 trillion from 1992 to $11 trillion finally in, uh, at the end of his administration. Yearly productivity was going up 4%. In the entire Reagan-Bush era, it went up a puny, I think it was 1.8%. There were 22 million new jobs. There was millions more than in the seven years before that. And unemployment went down from 7.5% to 4%. This was no illusion. There was a true Clinton boom, and it was affecting Americans across the board. African-American unemployment went down by half. Hispanic-American unemployment went down by half. Unemployment for women was, was the lowest it was in 40 years. The poverty rate fell by 3% um, to the uh, uh, a point well before Ronald Reagan's election. The federal, and all this was happening when the federal budget, instead of going up to a half a trillion dollars, the federal deficit as, disappeared. As... As had been predicted, as you noted earlier, had been predicted uh, in 1992 during the transition when Greenspan came down to Little Rock. The, the CBO had 
had projected that there would be this half a trillion dollar deficit by the end of the term, and instead uh, Clinton left with what? Well, the, the Office of Management and Budget in 99 was projecting a surplus of over $200 billion for 2000. Now, that wasn't going to happen, but there was a surplus for the last two or three years. I mean, it was extraordinary. It was the New York Times, which was no fan of Bill Clinton through much of this administration because of, of, of Whitewater, uh, said that it was the... Um, it was the the equivalent of the fall of the Berlin Wall that this would happen, and this was was on, uh, clearly on the minds of of a lot of Americans and certainly a lot of American voters in '98. And so, even after Gingrich's um, humiliation and his resignation, Tom Delay and Dick Armey didn't get the message, and they insisted on going forward with the impeachment uh, effort. And of course, it it was bound to fail, and it was not going to help them politically. So you are the first academic out of the gate with a real scholarly account of the Clinton presidency, uh, but obviously many, many more will follow in your wake. The, there'll be people pouring over the archives in Little Rock for decades. How do you how do you think history will judge Bill Clinton in the longer run? Well, it's hard to predict what what people are going to be writing about in 50 or 100 years about any present figure. Um, but my guess is that he's going to be treated well by historians. Right now, um, while the American public was uh, very supportive of him and his approval rating in the Gallup poll was substantially higher when he left office, even then... Uh, John Kennedy's or Ronald Reagan, strikingly higher than all other presidents since the surveys began at the end of World War II, and that's because of that that uh, remarkable uh, economic record. the The rankings of of uh, presidential scholars, historians, and others have been less kind, and he's almost never now placed in the pantheon of the greatest presidents. That's Abraham Lincoln and, and FDR and George Washington, and Theodore Roosevelt, and Jefferson, and Madison, and Wilson. And sometimes he's placed below um, Harry Truman, who left office, of course, with lamentable public approval ratings, and, and with JFK and, 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 and Dwight Eisenhower in present rankings. And the question is, what will it look like in many years to come? I think that his immensely successful domestic policies, this boom period, this building a bridge to the new millennium, which he accomplished in the in the 90s, is going to play a major role there. And his pragmatic and progressive and eventually very successful foreign policy will also be remarked upon by presidents to come. But, of course, we've got many years in the future in which there'll be ways in which perspectives will change. But, you know, oftentimes they don't change all that much. In um, this year, very this very year, the 100th anniversary of the First World War is coming up. And as we could have expected, there's going to be a torrent of new books. There are two major works that were just published on the question, who caused World War One? 
They're both based on deep work now and archival materials not available decades before. And the debate is still the same as it was across the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. It was Germany's res- that was responsible. No, it was the speak sleepwalkers. All sides were responsible. And we could probably look down the road and say that the same kind of debates that you're going to have in the future about Bill Clinton, where social conservatives or free market libertarians will not like what he did, um, but others, maybe not uh, left liberals who always were disappointed because he didn't give us a new deal, but still others who believe that, uh, given the historical setting, he was remarkably successful, will continue their debates. I guess we'll have to wait to find out. The book is Bill Clinton, Building a Bridge to a New Millennium. It's available December 19th. My guest, David Bennett from Syracuse University, who I generally refer to as Dad. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us and for talking to us about uh, politics on polyoptics. It truly was my pleasure. Thank you. That'll do it for this edition of Polyoptics. My name's Matt Bennett. Thanks so much to Josh King. He'll be back in the host chair next week, so make sure you tune in to Polyoptics. Polyoptics.